What's good, everyone? Welcome to Note to Scene, a weekly podcast that discusses the latest news in the scene and a retrospective deep dive on the nostalgia we all grew up with. This week, we have news from Metalcore Juggernauts, Vale Amaya, Fearless Records band Capstan, the return of Easy Core Giants, Chunk No Captain Chunk, and a deep dive on one of the scene's most influential modern bands, Attack Attack. So let's get started. Vale Amaya released a new song called Outsider. As far as I know, there hasn't been any confirmation of a new album yet, although people are definitely expecting one. I'd assume at this point it's been delayed due to the virus and and they were going to use the Dance Gavin Dance Tour that that they're on as their promo run for it. Now that that's gotten pushed back to August, I'm assuming they're going to roll it out in sync with that timeline, but at this point, they just dropped a Lucy called Outsider, and honestly, it's just super solid Velamaya. The track's backbone is a, is an eerie key melody that sets the foundation for super punchy riffs and a big drum mix to carry the song right into a massive chorus, and the breakdown is just fucking nasty. Like, if bands can figure out how to make dissonant chords groove, you've almost got a guaranteed crowd pleaser on your hands. But the real highlight here, and in Vale Amaya in general, is their vocalist, Lucas Magyar. Before Lucas joined the band, they were really just like this underrated Chicago deathcore band that took a bunch of notes from Misery Signals. Their first album with Lucas in 2015, Matriarch, took them from that tier to a whole new level moving more toward a more metalcore soundscape and just upping the ante in pretty much every direction. Heavy parts were heavier, melodic parts were bigger than ever before, and his range as a screamer and a singer opened so many doors for them. Matriarch and their most recent album, False Idol, are great listens, and I highly recommend them for any fan of modern metalcore. They also dropped a fantastic Lucy that I like even more than Outsider last year called Members Only that has a ridiculous melodic interlude in it that shows just how versatile the band really is. But Outsider is really solid. If you enjoy good metalcore, you're definitely like this song. There is a slight sense that this is just sounding like general Veil of Maya at this point, but it's still cohesive enough and brings enough energy to live above the fold. I'm at a 7.9 out of 10 on it. Moving on, we have Fearless Records band Capstan, who have released a new song called Live Bait. So Capstan came into the general scene consciousness around 2018. They have a super tight sound that takes kind of like the A Day to Remember approach of bouncing back and forth between pop punk and metalcore. And honestly, they do it incredibly well. And in a way that comes off more genuine than even most of A Day to Remember's moments of blending the genres do. But unfortunately, their lack of momentum is a product of the scene just not having a foundation for bands to grow. If they came out even just like five years before they did, they'd be a much, much bigger band than they are right now. But they dropped a song called Live Bait that apparently was just a B-side to their last album, but holy fucking shit, it should have been the lead single. This song absolutely rips, and it's completely separate from their usual sound, and probably why I like it so much. It's basically just Southern post-hardcore. And if you don't know by now, I'm a sucker for Southern heavy shit. Maylene and the Sun of Disaster is one of my favorite bands of all time. Once Nothing, The Holly Springs Disaster, I mean, bring back Southern Metalcore, Memphis Mayfire, bring back 
Soundtrack, Southern Metalcore, Vanna, you get the point. But this song takes a page right out of Every Time I Die's book in a time where literally it seems like every local heavy band is ripping off Every Time I Die. Seriously. And I, I'm not saying that in a shitty way. I fucking love this sound. But so, so, so many small ass bands sound like Every Time I Die right now. There's one called Louisiana Lot Lizards from Indiana. There's another one called American Slang. Another one called Fox Bat. I put all of those on the show Spotify playlist this week. Listen to them, this song by Capstan, and then Every Time I Die. It's so funny, but as a fan, like, I'm definitely not complaining. But back to Live Bait in specific, even the lyrics are reminiscent to Etid. Talking about the struggles with alcoholism and references to heaven and hell and sinners and saints. It's an impersonation for sure, but damn, is it fucking good. And the breakdown at the end? Come on. This song is a minute and a half, so good luck only listening to it once. I'm at an 8.7 out of 10 on it. Moving on to a name that we haven't heard in a minute. Chunk No Captain Chunk announced they were working on new music. This came during Fearless Records' live stream that they did over the weekend where they had a bunch of the bands on their roster come on and play some acoustic tracks and just talk to fans. Chunk's vocalist came on and revealed that the band is working on new music and that it'll likely come out later this year. This would be the band's first release since a Lucy in 2016 called Blame It On This Song. Their last album, Get Lost, Find Yourself, came out in 2015. Chunk were never a massive band, but they epitomized a lot of interesting things during a turning point in the scene. Anyone who was in the Defend Pop Punk group on Facebook when In Friends We Trust came out knows exactly what I'm talking about. There were obviously memes about bands before Chunk, but Hey Dudes Are You Ready To helped launch a new era of interaction between bands and fans. There was a time when you couldn't scroll through that group without seeing a meme from that music video as every other post. So whoever writes the book on the scene will have to include a sidebar about that shit. But Chunk was just one of those bands that people knew about, even if they didn't listen to them. And like I said, they were very emblematic of a niche era in the scene. They were easy core in its purest form. Like if Four Year Strong was produced by Joey Sturgis at the saturation point of Rise Core in 2012. Their second album was their biggest first week with 12,000, so that puts it in perspective about how big this band was over here. This comeback won't matter, but this was a really fun band in the scene, and I sure as hell spun the shit out of in Friends We Trust back in the day. It was cool to see this name in a headline again, and it took me back to some good memories from way back when. Some quick notes before our deep dive. Haley Williams officially released her debut solo album, Pedals for Armor, on Friday. I'm not going to review it because given the context of the record and the circumstances surrounding it, a male's opinion of it really doesn't matter. But it's out, you can listen to it and derive your own opinions on it. She also did a very revealing interview with Vulture, kind of detailing her entire career and experiences within the scene. I know I've voiced my thoughts many times on the commercial side of Haley Williams, but this goes way beyond all of that. Rabob wrote a news story on the site this week giving an overview of the interview, which you can check out at notetoscene.com. Dance Gavin Dance officially sold 23,000 total first week units on their album Afterburner. If it wasn't for the virus, this easily would have had the biggest first week of their career. And like I've said before, it's so defeating not to be able to have that conversation. But if you haven't yet, go listen to the record, and when all this shit is over, go see them on their headliner. They put on a fucking fantastic show. The Used officially did 7,000 first week with their new album, Heartwork. 
That's a drop from the 11,000 that the Canyon did a few years back. If they actually would have gone out on tour with Blink-182 before the album came out and were able to push those pre-orders, maybe they would have gotten closer to breaking even. But the fact is that the used stock is just so small at this point. The smaller you are, the less the virus impacts you. Now for a quick rock radio rundown. Falling in Reverse's popular monster stays at number one for another week. But based on how much Godsmack is gaining on it right now, it's definitely safe to say that this will be its last week at number one. It's still such a huge win for Ronnie, though. I mean, to have Falling in Reverse get their first number one single in 2020 is just an insane story. Asking Alexandria's anti-socialist single is officially a top 10 rock radio song. It moved up one spot from last week and increased 6.6% in total spins. So congrats to Asking. It's at number 10 right now. We'll see how far up it goes. It just seems to continue gaining momentum. We'll see if it breaks the top five. A Day to Remember's Resentment stays at number 14 this week, but the good sign for that song is that it's still climbing in total plays. It's up 6.6% from last week. Motionless and White's Another Life jumps one spot from 16 to 15, right behind A Day to Remember. This track is up 7% in spins from last week, and honestly, it's probably going to pass A Day to Remember at some point, if not next week, but we'll see. To find the next scene band, you got to jump all the way down to number 43, where Amity Affliction Soak Me in Bleach is at, down two spots from last week. And then Fit for a King's Breaking the Mirror just broke even from last week at number 45. That is the Rock Radio recap for this week. Now on to this episode's deep dive. So last week, I was revisiting my personal favorite Attack Attack album, Someday Came Suddenly, and I wondered if people would want to hear a deep dive on the band and their just insane story. So I sent out a a tweet on the Note to Scene account asking if anyone would, and y'all showed out even more than you did for the Never Shout Never episode last week. So here's what we're going to do. A full rundown of the band's history, from the first EP to Native and the two albums that never came out, the drama, i.e. Austin Carlisle, their sales numbers, which are more than people realize or acknowledge historically, and the legacy. Attack Attack started a movement, and it gave us years of wild headlines. So let's start in 2007, when the band released their first and only EP, If Guns Are Outlawed, Can We Use Swords? The first half of the release had demos of songs that would end up on Someday Came Suddenly. It had The People's Elbow, Dr. Shivargo Part 2, Party Foul, and What Happens If I Can't Check My MySpace When We Get There. The second half had songs that were either repurposed into other songs, like portions of them were, or they were just never used again. It had the title track, If Guns Are Outlawed, another one called On the Porch, Healthy Normal, and Poison Sumac Body Rap. These songs are demos, so they have a very rough quality to them, but I always find it interesting to hear songs in their original forms and then what was changed for album versions. The songs they never used again are definitely interesting to hear sound-wise. Like the outro for On the Porch is literally just MySpace grindcore. It's heavy as hell, and like the band never had another moment that was this heavy. Healthy Normal is a great impression of early emo Greeley estates before they went full metalcore. But like I said though, these are definitely some rough, there are definitely some rough parts of these recordings, like Johnny Frank's Cleans, but overall like very nostalgic and honestly a little ahead of their time even at that point. Next after this, they signed to Rise Records from these demos and released Someday Came Suddenly. 
I remember seeing ads for this album in issues of Alternative Press, and at that point, Rise Records really was the coolest label in the scene. If they signed a band, I was absolutely listening to it. Like, they had my 110% blind support. So I remember going with my mom to the mall and buying this album the day it came out, listening to it in the car on the way home, and just instantly falling in love. It's so weird to think that that was 12 years ago, because... To this day, I still listen to it, and it takes me right back to that summer. I was in eighth grade, going into high school. So many memories of just playing baseball that summer, skating everywhere, and just being kids. Like, the intro to Bro Ashley's here takes me right back to that baseball diamond in Indiana. But anyways, we obviously know the impact this album had. From the bright colors and aesthetic of the album packaging, the promo of the band on the back cover where Austin's got his arms wide open and everyone just looks. You can't look away from this band. That's what it screamed. Uh, Carlisle's Fry screams that were reminiscent of screamo bands that came before him. Caleb Shomo's over-the-top synths. Auto-tuned as fuck hooks. This album set the standard for what was to come with modern metal core and we eventually called that crab core and after a while we called it generic core so i was actually able to dig up a barely intact mtv article there's broken links there's there's code inside the article but it's still there and you can still read it for the most part it was about the first week sales of the week that someday came out which was actually the same day taylor swift's fearless album came out and i learned from this article that that record did 592,000 units first week but they actually listed Attack Attack's number for Someday Came Suddenly, and they did 3,600 first week. So the band went on tour in support of this album, and this, this tour lineup is one of my favorites of all time, just because of how many intersecting storylines there were at that time. Attack Attack was the opening band for Confide, Showbread, A Static Lullaby, and headliners mainly in the Sun of Disaster. Like, first off, literally not one band on that tour is around today. A static lullaby said new music was coming last year, but we haven't heard anything since. But holy shit, what a fucking lineup. I would pay so much money to see this today. But anyways, about halfway through this tour, Attack Attack left Austin Carlisle crying in a parking lot in Utah and never worked with him again. Two years after this, in 2010, there were rumors of Austin Carlisle rejoining the band, to which Attack Attack drummer Andrew Wetzel responded to in a historical document of a statement. And thankfully, it's preserved in various scene blog posting. So here's what he wrote. Boys and girls, we are here to address the new rumor that Austin is back in Attack Attack. I would first like to point out that it would be the coldest day in hell for him to ever get back in our band. To clear this whole thing up, we'll start with the history. Someday came suddenly. We recorded Someday Came Suddenly with Joey Sturgis in July of 2008 with Austin doing vocals. September 11th, 2008. We left Ohio with Austin and the band going on our first tour ever, the Rise Records tour. Three weeks later, we left him in a dark parking lot in Salt Lake City, Utah. He sat there and cried like a little girl while we drove away from him. Facts. Austin would repeatedly claim that we were a Christian band on stage while being completely drunk and continuing to drink on stage. 
He abused his prescription medications, drank heavily, and slept with anything that crossed his path. He is an egotistical maniac and an arrogant jerk. We gave him everything. We gave him a family, our homes, our money, our love, and all he did in return was throw it back on our faces. He personally went out of his way to ruin Caleb's life on tour because Caleb tried to tell Austin that what he was doing was messed up. I can sit here all day and name off underage girls that he slept with, people he screwed over, stolen from, lied to, and used for his selfish purposes. Austin made our band. Austin almost destroyed our band. The only reason we are here right now is because all of us had the drive to push through all of that horse shit and do something with our lives. I can speak for everyone in the band when I say all the rest of the dudes and of Mice and Men are some of the greatest people we have ever met. We love each and every single one of them. We also love our loyal fans that have stuck with us through all the drama and all of that shit. Because you all know there has to be a good reason for Austin's, quote, departure. I can't describe how stoked we are that this has finally come to light. Austin, I know you're reading this. No respect. Signed, Wetzel, and the rest of the band, Attack Attack. So the band posted this and then deleted it and put up another statement. It read, Hello, boys and girls. This is the deal behind the blog and why it's been taken down. When the band and I sat down, they dictated to me what we all wanted to say. We did so knowing that the blog was only going to be up until tonight. It's not being taken down because we're sorry, because anyone asked, or because it's not the truth. It is the truth, and all of our fans deserve to know what happened. For those of you who ask why this didn't come out when it happened, the answer is very, very simple. We didn't want to drag down of Mice and Men with Austin. We absolutely love all the rest of those guys, and we would never want them to be affected more by him. The blog went up because ever since October of 2008, people have been, have been asking us nonstop what happened to Austin. Now you all know. Also, I'm going to answer a question statement that I've seen a lot. We are not a Christian band. I don't even know how many times we've said it, but we aren't. But your lyrics have some Christian meanings in them. And... People write lyrics about murdering, but that doesn't mean they're murderers. We're a freaking band, guys. We're normal dudes that just so happen to play some music. We have a good time, and a lot of you enjoy coming and experiencing that. Again, we want to stress that we are not taking back anything we've said, and we will always stand behind the truth. From this moment on, the Austin thing is dead. We will never mention him again on the internet. This whole situation can finally be buried after almost two years of conflict. It's over. In brighter news, we're super excited for the release of our new record, and we cannot wait to tear shit up at Warp Tour. Obviously, there's a shit ton to unpack from these statements, but the most important part is the underage girls allegation, to which Austin Carlisle has been accused of multiple times over the years, and somehow continually escaped mass public scrutiny from it. For the sake of legal sides of things and me not wanting to get sued, I'll let you all do the research on it and come to your own conclusions. And I encourage you to do so. It's important to, at the very least, be aware of the conversations surrounding influential people. So, like I said, Austin Carlisle never reunited with Attack Attack in any way. He was replaced by Nick Barham, who is the one that's seen in the video for Stick Stickly, which I always thought was funny to think about. The video that became such a popular representation of the song, and the guy in it acting as the screamer isn't who you hear on the recording. I just thought that was funny. But Nick is the brother of Sleeping With Sirens drummer Gabe, and it came from a band called For All We Know, who Kellen Quinn was also associated with in some capacity before Sleeping With Sirens. 
but Nick only actually featured on one Attack Attack recording, which was their cover of Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl on Punk Goes Pop 2. I love the Punk Goes series for the way they captured a lot of these types of moments. Another example is the only song of Mice and Men recorded with Jerry Roosh, which was their cover of Blame It on Punk Goes Pop 3. But so Nick's time in Attack Attack as a vocalist was very short-lived. After he left, Caleb Shomo took over Screaming Duties, and that brings us to Attack Attack's self-titled album. So, fun fact, this album was actually supposed to be called Shazam, but they didn't because of legal shit with the music app that's called the same name. But the first single was called Sexual Man Chocolate, which I remember at the time caused some controversy because of Someday Came Suddenly's overwhelming Christian lyrical presence. And then the band came back with a song title like that. But what really catapulted this campaign was the song Smokehannas. I remember the day they dropped it on their MySpace. I was at a friend's house, and when we pressed play and heard that iconic synth line build up and drop into that breakdown, we were floored. When that first snare hits and it shakes your fucking stereo, and Caleb comes in and screams, I'm alone in a crowded room, this was hands down the song that kept Attack Attack alive on this cycle. It felt like the perfect progression from someday. We weren't getting the same album but it took bits from that and just made it fucking huge. They also dropped an Austin Carlisle of Mice and Men diss track called AC-130. It's basically just a super long breakdown with the only lyrics being, you think you could be God, who appointed you judge, you take yourself too seriously, keep building your walls up higher, then you can be your own king, you're better off dead. Of Mice and Men responded with an Attack Attack diss track called 7,000 Miles for What? But the video for Smokehannas became pretty iconic in the scene too. The band were basically portrayed as the mob, like ordering hits on people, cleaning up after murders, and the performance shot in front of the burning car at night made it feel like they were truly back with a vengeance. Self-titled jumped their first week career from 3,600 to 15,000, which is a great, great jump for a band to be able to deliver on their sophomore album. They later dropped a deluxe edition of the album with four new tracks that were actually produced by John Fellman. The first one they dropped was Last Breath, and I remember the backlash that they got for it when they came out, because it's a very much more rock-leaning sound than what's on the actual self-titled album. It's funny because now you just see people talking about how good they think these songs were, but when they came out, people were pretty fucking pissed about it. But Caleb, years later, revealed that when he was with Feldman to record these songs, he recorded an entire new album of Attack Attack songs that never got released. Rise Records owns the masters to these songs, which is why they'll probably never get released. But yes, there is an actual secret Attack Attack album besides the native one that we'll get to in a few minutes. But after the self-titled cycle, their stock dropped. The guitarist and clean vocalist Johnny Frank left and formed a project called The March Ahead. He plays in a solo project now called Bill Murray. But that left Caleb Shomo to take over all vocal duties in the band, and then we got the band's final album, This Means War. It was a far more metal-based sound, with all the breakdowns you can imagine. Looking back on the record now, you can really hear the Beartooth sounds in it and where Caleb was heading at that time, mentally and musically. Still, despite distancing from their signature electronic sound, the self-titled cycle carried them and gave them enough momentum to another increase in first week totals with this album. They did 19,000 on This Means War. So Attack Attack never once dropped in their first week career, which is, again, reflective of one, consistently staying in the conversation for things 
things outside of the music, i.e. drama, and two, actually delivering on the music. But in December 2012, after nearly a year on the cycle for this album, Caleb announced that he was leaving the band. Now, literally the day after this, Attack Attack dropped a new song called No Defeat. I remember it premiered on Alternative Press, and they offered it as a free download. It was the first to feature their new vocalist, Phil Droyer, who was from the band I Am Abomination. The amount of people this song pissed off was absolutely ridiculous. And it's funny because it's actually a really, really solid song. But it sounded like if their self-titled album was just a, like a funky rock album with a shit ton of electronics over it. The band did one tour in Europe near the beginning of 2013 before they announced they were officially retiring the Attack Attack name. The remaining members formed a new project called Native, which everyone who was still paying attention to at that point just treated it like it was Attack Attack with the new name because it essentially was. But man, was Native a fucking shit show. The band had drama out the ass and no solid music or touring to back it up. They ended up releasing just a handful of demos that they used to tease the Native album that never actually came out. They all pretty much just sound like different variations of No Defeat. But when I was doing research for this episode, I found out that a couple months ago, Phil was actually selling this unreleased album to anyone who sent him money on Instagram. I tried to find any places where it had been uploaded, but it seems like the general sentiment of people who are aware that he was doing this is that you should give him the money instead of anyone uploading it for people to hear for free. I found it on a couple RIP websites and Zippy websites, but all of the files were taken down or removed. I haven't reached out to him or done this or given him any money, but people on the Metalcore subreddit seem to insist that it's legit. So if you try it, do it at your own risk. But eventually, Native ended up with a bizarre statement from Phil explaining that there was a quote, verbal physical altercation between two members of the band and they were done pursuing a future as a group. And this brought just a bizarre end to Attack Attack story. But I guess it's only fitting that it ended in a fireball of drama that it pretty much started with, just with almost completely different people. Matt and I had a joke when we were at Alt Press about how many ex-Attack Attack bands there were. At one point it felt like we were writing stories for new ones every week. So to the best of my knowledge, here is a list of every ex-Attack Attack band. Of Mice and Men, which technically doesn't even count anymore because Austin's not in it, but for a long time it was Of Mice and Men, Beartooth, Class, which is Caleb Shomo's EDM side project, and funny enough, after he left Attack Attack, he said this was going to be his main focus and Beartooth was just a fun sideband. He released a handful of songs as Class, and they're actually great dance songs. It makes you wonder if he would have ended up playing huge EDM fest instead of where he went with Beartooth. It, it's interesting to think about. But there was also The March Ahead, The Bad Chapter, Nine Shrines, Brightwell, and Bill Murray. So that is the story of Attack Attack, a band of kids from Ohio that legitimately changed the scene as we know it today. The amount of bands that copied their blueprint sound and image is virtually endless. It's funny to see people on Twitter try to act cool and put up semi-ironically toned tweets about how they think Someday Came Subtly is actually kind of good. Fuck you if you do that. Like what you like and stop caring about what other people think of you. Attack Attack was a shit show from basically day one, but they truly started a new era of metalcore, for better or for worse. 
Thank you so much for listening this week. Next week, I'll have final Boston Manor first week numbers for their new album, Glue, a rundown of the rock radio charts, a new deep dive, and more. If you have any questions for the show, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd very much appreciate it. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.